This morning, I wanted to read our text for, that I'll be preaching from as a responsive reading, which means I will read and you will respond with reading something, another part of the text. And so my part, uh, your part will be in bold, and I will begin, okay? And so as soon as we have it on there. Okay, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. For he who promised is faithful. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us hear and understand and embrace your truth this morning. I pray that you would inspire and convict, call and empower, shape us and unite us through your spirit who gives this word life and power. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the first few years that I began to step into my calling to be a spiritual leader and equipper within the local church, uh, like four different men had an eerily similar conversation with me. Uh, these are men whom I greatly respect and have given their lives to pastoral ministry, and they began by uh, affirming my calling, affirming that they, they see God at work in my life for this purpose. And they told me they weren't saying this just to flatter me or even to encourage me, but to prepare me. And then they told me why confirming my calling is so important. Because this is a life-defining path. A path full of difficulty and disappointment and discouragement. And the only thing that can sustain this life is a clear sense of God's calling from, from, him, from God himself that can embolden and energize and empower you. And though there are incredible blessings involved, it's not the way to go for those seeking their own self-interests. And the, about the third or fourth time this happened, I started thinking, what am I getting myself into? But as I reflected on what they said, that's the whole point. I'm not getting myself into this. God is. And if I live like I'm getting myself into this, I won't be able to bear the weight of it. But if I'm living in God's calling, then I won't only be able to bear it, but will flourish in it because I am... And I'm grateful for those men's, uh, that talk, their affirmation, the perspectives they offered me. And I want to have the same talk with you all this morning. Because those same things could be said about being a part of a church in general. And this morning, through this text, I want to shape our perspective on community. To see it as a calling rather than a commodity. So I want to ask you, do you view church, community, as a calling or as a commodity? A commodity is something to meet my own particular needs at an acceptable cost to me. 
We commodify relationships when we view them as means to satisfy our own personal desires and agendas. A commodity is all about you. But a calling is not yours, nor is it for you. It's God's, and it's ultimately for Him. A calling catches you up into something bigger than yourself. A calling brings intentionality and a sense of purpose. And I'm saying this is the view we ought to have of community. Whereas the commodity viewpoint, it, it, it breeds self-centered consumerism, viewing community as a calling cultivates this God-glorifying, other-centered, covenantal love. When we view relationships as a, and community as a, as a commodity, well, then the natural consequence is that it leads to consumeristic tendencies and transactional ways of relating to one another. What do I mean by that? Well, consumerism approaches faith in terms of what I can get out of it or what you can do for me. And, and transactional relationships are like, I put this much in, so I should get this much out. And I did this nice thing, so I expect you to do something nice for me in return. Or, or they wronged me in such a way, and so I have the right to wrong them back. This way of thinking, it falsely assumes that relationships are best when they're governed by hope of reward or fear of punishment. And consumerism, it makes our faith fickle and fragile. If it doesn't meet my tastes and desires, I'm out. It's epidemic in churches. And it's a result of viewing faith communities as commodities for self rather than as a calling to others and ultimately to God. Christ calls us to a radically different way, to a life of love that has been set free and is empowered by the astounding good news of God's grace through Christ. The way of Jesus, it confronts the way of the world that is ruled by self-interest and competition and legalism. And Jesus calls us to the way of grace that can transform our relationships, even with the most unlovable and broken people among us. Instead of counting on merits and demerits to earn our affection and respect and commitment, we must realize that love is a complete gift. And community is a calling. In Jesus, we don't just come to people for what they can offer us. And we don't just try to treat people the way they deserve to be treated. We extend the grace that we have experienced in Jesus Christ. This is so important because if we view community as a commodity, then we will approach it like consumers thinking primarily about what we like and don't like and the benefit and the satisfaction we get out of it. Or even worse, we will fall into transactional ways of relating to one another so that when we're not fully compensated the way we think we ought to be for our services rendered or even just our presence, then resentment and discontentment will develop and grow until personal happiness is lost and then the church or small group commodity is no longer serving its, its purpose, and so it's abandoned. But the calling of Jesus, it compels us in the way of grace and other-centered, unconditional love. The transformative love of Jesus himself. And if our love 
for our community, if it rests on the promise of Christ's love rather than a mere experience of happiness or satisfaction, then if lack of happiness and satisfaction arises, we may see it as a problem to be solved or addressed, but not as a reason to leave. In Christ, if we view relationships as a com- you know, in community as a calling rather than a commodity, that's, that's what he calls us to. That's the view we need to have. And that means that we are, are called to non-transactional ways of grace and giving grace. Because Christians are not meant to be consumers. We're meant to be servants like Jesus. And he calls us to a committed participation in communities that's centered around him. As Jesus followers, we are called to do Jesus things in Jesus ways. And Jesus cared about intentional community. He cared about gospel-centered relationships. He cared about this stuff. And, it's the, and his life, it, it involves these profound, non-transactional ways of living. Didn't it? And in this passage in Hebrews that we read, he calls us to embody his way of life in the context of a community of faith. And this will not come naturally if you view community as a commodity. But viewing community as a calling, it frees you. It frees you to selflessly love and to give yourself away. This passage in Hebrews 10, it teaches us about Christian gatherings. But it's not primarily large worship gatherings like right now that we're in, where you can be anonymous and passive. It's, it's a relational small group setting because it's talking about doing these things, if you read it, with and to one another. So there's relationship and mutuality involved in these gatherings that he's describing. Now, I obviously believe preaching and praise and larger gatherings are important. I am a preacher, after all. I love it. I think it's super important. But just as important are environments like this passage calls us to, where we are essential participants, each of us, who know and love, and are known, and loved, where we're practicing these one, the many varied one another commands of Scripture. And the author of Hebrews, he bases this on the foundation of the gospel. He gets really practical for what Christian community ought to look like, but the practical elements, they come after the source and the power that generates them, namely Jesus and the gospel. In verses 19 through 22, he explains what the gospel means for us now. How Jesus' death and resurrection ought to affect us. He says this, he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, this whole book of Hebrews is drenched in Old Testament imagery, and this passage is no different. So, you know, he talks about holy places and blood and the curtain and priests and the house of God and sprinkled clean, washed with pure water. And all of this, it's it's a really Jewish way of talking about the gospel. And he takes some familiarity, it it takes some familiarity with the Old Testament to really fully understand it, but you do see some clear statements in there too, if you read it, don't you? Like, we have confidence to, to draw near to God with true hearts and full assurance of faith, 
through a new and living way that Jesus' death opened up for us. He's speaking about this idea that through sin and rebellion, we have alienated ourselves from our Creator, from the God who loves us. But Jesus' death and his resurrection, it forged the path back home. And through faith in him, we can draw near to God, draw near to the, the one who has power to heal us and change us, to the one who made us and loves us. And he says that because Jesus has done this, because Jesus made a way through his blood, we should take advantage of it. We should Draw near to God, since we can through Jesus. Jesus provides us a living way to God so that we can draw near to him without our faults and our failures getting in the way. And so we should do it, he says. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's saying Jesus has made you clean. He's made you pure. Trust in, in that. Trust in his power and in his forgiveness. Have assurance that in faith that you can draw near to the God who loves you. And he says, but, but notice he says, let us do this. Let us draw near. And then he goes on about explaining what this looks like. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, this is a corporate affair. This is something we do together. Our faith is meant to be personal, yes, but not private. The fact, in, in fact, the author of Hebrews, he, what he's saying here, he's trying to get us to see that we draw near to God precisely through drawing near to his people. That's, how, that's the way this paragraph is structured. He's saying, draw near to God, and then he starts talking about all the things we do together. And this is just in line with what Jesus says, isn't it? I mean, Jesus says things like this. He says, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And when, he's, when Paul is running around persecuting the church, and he, Jesus comes and confronts him. He says, Saul, why are you persecuting? Does he say the church? He says, me. And, and he says, where two or more are gathered in my name, I am present. And he says, if you receive a little child in my name, you receive me. Jesus so identifies with and indwells his people that we actually love him and draw near to him by loving and drawing near to his people. It's so counter to the radical individualism of, of our day. Well, well, not even really just of our day. Autonomy is an ancient idol. It's Adam and Eve in the garden eating the fruit, trying to decide good and evil for themselves rather than on God's terms. It's Cain, after he killed his brother Abel, sarcastically saying to God, am I my brother's keeper? It's Christians in first century Rome who just decided they don't have to gather with other Christians. And so the author of Hebrews writes to them and says, don't neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. Today it's spiritual but not religious. And this Jesus in me type of pseudo-Christianity. 
I recently had a conversation with someone who said they found it weird that people who follow Jesus are so devoted to religion when it seemed like Jesus was tearing down religion in the church. You know, opening tables and confronting the leaders. And, and, and while I get where they're coming from, Jesus did want to tear down religion in a sense. He tore down the, the self-righteousness and the judgmentalism and the rigid traditionalism and the exclusivism and the going through the motions without a heart that truly loves God. He, he wanted to tear down all of that stuff that all too often comes with religion, but he wanted to do it to build something better and truer and deeper in its place, a building made of living stones of which he would be the cornerstone and a body of which he would be the head. And these images, they convey the necessity of many individuals, distinct individuals, united together to become something bigger and better and more purposeful than they could be on their own. Jesus created a community that, would, that he would indwell through his spirit. Biblical Christianity is a calling to live in community, to be with one another purposefully, and when Jesus calls us to himself, he calls us to one another. And when he calls us to one another, it's to call us to himself. And there's these three main ideas that the author of Hebrews says are to mark this community in this passage. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. He says, let us encourage one another. So look at each of these. Let's, let's look at each of these. He says, first, let us hold fast the confession of our hope, for he who promised is faithful. He's saying that a mark of our togetherness is to cling to the truth, because we are so prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. He even says in chapter 2, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. And he says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So we help each other hold fast to the truth that is the foundation of our hope. And he says we do this because he who promised is faithful. God is faithful to his promises. So we should speak these promises to each other and look at these promises together and tell each other stories from the Bible and from experience that bolster our confidence that God is faithful to his promises. This is what makes Christian community greater and deeper than other forms of community that end up just being what some have called lifestyle enclaves, where groups of like-minded people who express their identity through shared patterns of appearance and consumption and leisure activities. But Christian community, it unites people around more than common bonds of looking the same and liking the same stuff. A church community, it frees you to be a part of something bigger than yourself, often bringing you to be a part of the lives of people who are not very much like you because we are a community indwelt by one who is faithful to his promises. That's the center. And together we hold fast to the truth that he communicates to us as our, as our life-changing, it brings us life-changing and true hope. And holding fast to the confession of our hope, it's a, it's a community project. I mean, I just, by the way my life has gone and my calling, I have, as an individual, read the Bible a lot on my own and, and heard a lot of 
lectures and a lot of sermons and read a lot of books about the Bible. And I've, learned, and I've learned a lot and grown a lot through these experiences and practices, but by far the majority of the greatest insights and times when God has spoken to me clearly and powerfully and memorably and transformative ways has been through discussing God's Word together with other people, hearing from Him together and hearing how He is speaking to others and through others and, and their perspectives, and processing it together, internalizing it as a community of good news. We discuss God's Word together and discover what He is speaking to us, not just to me. We unite around the truth, around the truth that God has spoken to us so that it will bolster us and make us unwavering in our hope. That's what he says, hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. And this is the first component of community. He also says here that we're to encourage one another. Some translations say comfort one another. And, and this is the second of the three components of community in this passage. And the word he uses, I, you know, sometimes I like to teach you Greek words. So the word he uses here in the Greek is the word parakaleo. Parakaleo. It's a form of the word paraclete which is what Jesus called the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John. Often, that when, he, when, when Jesus called him that, the, the Holy Spirit, it's often translated helper or advocate, comforter. And I don't think it's a coincidence that he call, is calling us to be for one another what the Holy Spirit is to us, because it is precisely the Holy Spirit who's working in and through us, Right? And the church, this image has always stuck with me, that the church is more like a cluster of grapes than like a bag of marbles. You know, like a, a, they're both these collections of individual little round entities, right? But the marbles, they're merely held together by an exterior barrier and can move around and even slip out unnoticed. But the grapes, they're held together through a life-giving source that indwells and unites them, and they each have a place. And when something is wrong with one, it's a sign that there might be something wrong with another or will be soon. And we are like grapes, inter intimately connected and affected by one another. We can't just choose to live like a marble that's you know in the bag with the other marbles when they're in the bag, but it doesn't really have to be there to be a good marble. You know, We're in the vine. The paraclete. He lives in us and unites us and he calls us to parakaleo one another. So we encourage and comfort and help and advocate for one another, lifting each other up before the Father intentionally and specifically. This means that we really have to know one another and that prayer isn't, it's just not just a tacked on transition it takes So this, this way of living, it takes time, intentionality, and genuine care for others, but it is so important. And he says it's all the more necessary in the text. It's all the more necessary as you see the day drawing near, he says, which I think he brings that up because he's referring to the idea that the end of the age will bring great evil and stress and temptation. And when these things arise in our lives, that's when we need each other more than ever. Or at least that's when we feel it. Because we always need each other. But when life is easy and breezy and going good, we, it's easy for us to think that we're fine with a couple casual friends and some Netflix. 
But that's a, that's a self-centered fog that the devil wants to place over us. Because it's not putting others' lives before our own. Others whose lives may not be so rosy. And it's also dangerous for us because when calamity does strike in our lives, we, and we need, we feel the need for comfort and encouragement, we won't have a natural place to go. So we need to build this into the rhythms of our life to encourage one another and build one another up, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice, comforting and praying for one another regularly. But we also need encouragement to be steadfast as we follow Jesus and pursue holiness. Because the author of Hebrews, he uses the same word in chapter 3 when he says, take care, brothers, lest there be in, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort parakaleo, one another, every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need to be encouraged and exhorted to turn to rather than away from the living God because sin is deceitful. Sin, it will lie to you and tell you it's better to live in sin than it is to live in God. And we need encouragement to walk in the way of Jesus and continue down this often hard path. We need to be one another's cheerleaders on this journey of faith. And this leads to this third component of community in this text, which is verse 24. It's in verse 24. He says this, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So, so this, this, it begins with considering one another, thinking about each other, this an intentional attentiveness to the state of others and their lives for the purpose of helping them become who they are called to be. To live out this calling of love. We're helping people live out the calling of love. In this translation, it says to stir up one another. Another translation I like says provoke. Provoke one another. We're called to this intentional thoughtfulness about those in our community so that we can spur them on and inspire them and challenge them to live lives marked by loving God and loving others and to act on that love. This biblical idea of love, it's this, it's this idea of radical other-centeredness, committing to the good and the flourishing of others above even yourself. And this does not come naturally to us. It doesn't. And Jesus knows that. And so does the author of Hebrews. And so they call, they call us to help each other live this way, to point out blind spots, to look for opportunities to partner together in ministry and service, to hold one another accountable, to grow in love in our daily lives. So we stir up love through this intentional thoughtfulness, intentionally thinking about each other, to, and challenging one another, and, and inspiring one another, and partnering with one another, and holding one another accountable. Now some of those probably sound good to you, and some, not so much. You know, we like, some, we like two of these, and we hate two of these. We like in being inspired, and we like for people to partner with us. We, we probably dislike, you know, challenge, and we dislike accountability in our lives. 
You know, because if you've ever partnered with someone in ministry and in acts of love or service, you know that it's a powerful and a stirring bond, even though it takes time and thought and energy, and, and it's generally on the more positive side of things in our mind. But challenge and accountability, you know, once our anger problem is brought up or our spending habits are commented on or we, how we don't follow through on commitments or how we're living just for ourselves, well, then, you know, that's a little too personal. We don't want to sign up for something like that. But I want to challenge you to get those categories of like and dislike out of your head because that's thinking about you again. I want you to think about others and how you can help them flourish in who Christ has called them to be because you love them and because you love the God who called them and because you love the people in their life who will benefit from you helping them love more. Because love is so centrally important. And Jesus told us that love is, right? We read it in Mark. Love is the greatest commandment. And, and Paul tells us in Romans 13 that love fulfills the whole law. And he tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that if you are the most gifted and spiritual person, but you aren't loving, you're nothing. Love is so important to Jesus. And he is telling us that it won't be manifested the way it ought to be if we are not stirring it up in one another and provoking one another to love and act in love. Jesus told us that the love of many will grow cold, didn't he? And that those who persevere to the end will be saved. The purpose of community is to keep love warm, to fan the flames of love, and we need to really let this grip us. Jesus told us that the, that the love of many would grow cold, but he didn't just leave it there. He told us the remedy to that coldness. It's being a part of a community that meets together to hold fast the confession of our hope and to encourage one another and to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works and acts of love. So we should listen to him. If we don't listen to him, we are fools. He tells us that too. Let me say something that may seem a little obvious, but I think it needs saying, because that when he, when he gives us these commands, it implies that we need to do these things in order to be living the Christian life rightly. In, or, in other words, that we, these aren't just suggestions. He's saying that you aren't going to love others the way you ought to love people, if you don't have people in your life spurring you on to do so. And you are going to be overcome by the weight of this fallen world if you don't have people in your life encouraging you. And you are going to drift from the confession of your hope if you aren't committed to a group of people who are clinging together to it for dear life. And you aren't going to be able to draw near to God if you aren't drawing near to his people. So how do we create a community like this? Well, in a sense, we can't. We can't. It takes God working in and through people to make them others-centered, to want to live this way. It, take, it takes a fundamental rewiring of our hearts. And that's Jesus' work. But what we could do is try to intentionally make space for these kinds of things to happen. And it will be messy, 
and uncomfortable at times. But that's why it requires that we see community not as a commodity, but as a calling. That's what it will take. And I'm telling you, God has called you to this kind of community to build meaningful, gospel-centered relationships that are not primarily motivated by self and what I get out of it. The question is, will you embrace this call to commit to community? Not because it fulfills your preferences, but because it's forming you to be more like Jesus. Will you commit to looking at church not in terms of what you can get, but what you can give? And considering how your presence with the body might encourage others and stir them up to love and good works. Will you trust Jesus enough to embrace the awkwardness and the inconvenience and the costliness even at times of community? If you do, you will be a powerfully countercultural witness to the love of Jesus. Because our, we fallen human beings, we're so prone to commodify our relationships. We just kind of default into that. And here's one example. There's an entrepreneur that Audrey and I knew in Nashville. Not too long ago, she posted an Instagram picture of herself with the billionaire Richard Branson. And she wrote on the picture, always be upgrading. Don't keep anyone that is not bringing value to your life. And she's not pulling it out of thin air. That's a common idea nowadays. But that is not the heart of Christ. That's viewing relationships as commodities. Viewing people as things to be consumed for our own selfish reasons. And though most of us would, I hope, have the tact to never post something like that, we can easily fall into that same way of thinking about relationships. Uh, there's a guy named Jean Vanier who says this really profoundly and clearly. He says, what we often deem community is simply the people we use to become what we desire. This is when others become resources amid our quest for self-actualization. In sin, others become objects to use for our own benefit. In our own quest to feel whole, we can end up consuming others rather than embracing them in love. Let me tell you about Jean Vanier. He died just a couple months ago. It was a sad day. But he was a Jesus follower. And many years ago, he faced the disturbing and dehumanizing conditions of government-run institutions for those with disabilities. And his love for Christ, it overflowed into compassion and a desire to offer these people a different life. So he did what he could. He invited two men with disabilities to live with him. Two men who, from the world's perspective, brought his life far less value than Richard Branson would. But Jean viewed his relationships as a calling rather than a commodity. And so Jean gave them what he had, himself, love, and community. This became the first large community, and it's the model of nearly 150 large communities that now exist around the world. And that entrepreneur I mentioned a minute ago, she's living by a worldly wisdom that identifies people in worldly ways such as status in order to, to decide if we should find them valuable. 
But in Jesus, we see that others are not commodities to judge the value of, but are intrinsically valuable people to give ourselves to in love. Jesus' mission, when he came, it involved his self-giving love to undeserving people. We are those undeserving people. As we receive the gift of himself, we are caught up into his life and formed into a new people who are conformed into his likeness and his way of love and life. In our fallen hearts, we, they still will tend to view relationships as commodities. But we must remind ourselves and remind one another that as those who are in Jesus, we are called to give ourselves for the good of others. To love those whom he has given us to love. Out of the overflow of the abundant grace and love that he has shown us through his life and his death for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the incredible gift of your Son. For a Savior who, who loved us and gave himself up for us to sanctify us and unite us to himself in an internal, intimate relationship. We ask that you would give us hearts and minds that love this truth and lives and relationships that reflect your amazing grace. Empower us with your spirit to love those whom you have given us to love and to love them your way. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.